It's Detroit Today on 1019 WDET, where I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson. Last year was a big one for the United States politically. The Biden administration passed three major legislative packages, the Chips and Science Act, Infrastructure Law, and the Inflation Reduction Act. Together, these laws are meant to improve manufacturing at home, smooth out supply chains, and help America transition to an economy focused on producing and distributing green energy technologies. But how are these things impacting our neighbors mere miles away in Canada? What has Canada, one of the world's largest oil producers, been doing to transition away from carbon-emitting technologies? And how are the two countries working together to create a future that is cleaner and more prosperous for North America writ large? To talk about all of this, we have Francois-Philippe Champagne here with us. He is the Canadian Federal Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry, and he is on tour through Michigan. Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne, welcome to Detroit and welcome to Detroit Today. Well, thank you, Nick. It's a a real pleasure, I would say, to be back. You know, uh, uh, when you come to Detroit, uh, oftentimes I go to Windsor and just have to look. And sometimes I've given an interview and the background is the either American flag, you know, or, or the Canadian flag, depending on which side you are. So... Uh, everything you said, I would subscribe. Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, I would summarize that there won't be a decision on one side of the border that won't have an impact on both sides, and particularly the workers. So everything you just said about the frame. And I think that the piece of legislation that you mentioned that President Biden uh, put, uh, for me, is a catalyst for us to do more together. I, I think it's a great moment uh, at a time where we see there is a generational opportunity and for me, um, you know, having been now being Secretary of Commerce, but having been Secretary of State before, I always say to my American friends, and I've come here very often, although you never come too often, I would say, is is how can we innovate more together? How can we manufacture more together? And how can we sell more together to the rest of the world? And I think there is a, there is a moment uh, in time and we're living through it where if we seize the opportunities, we're going to create jobs for decades to come. Well, that's part of what we want to get into here, because as you mentioned, we here in Detroit understand, especially being so connected to Canada, that not one decision is isolated. We all live Indeed. here as a group. But even with that said, we know a lot of things about Canada, vague things, and probably don't get into the nuances of just how your political system hmm. is quite different than ours. So before we even get into uh, specifically uh, what you're doing here right now, tell the audience a little bit about what you do as the Federal Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry in a parliamentary government. Well, it's very interesting. I'm, I'm glad you bring that, Nick, because... Uh, most of my colleagues, the, the, the different secretaries in the United States, sometimes always ask us, because for us, obviously, we're part of a political party, but the major difference for our listeners is that in our system, you have to be elected to be member of cabinet. So I have my own district in the way that I represent in parliament. And just to make you smile, my district is bigger than the country of Belgium in Europe. So it's about eight hours north-south driving. And, and you basically need a pickup to do that because I go way up north. So not only I have a cabinet responsibility for, uh, for the nation and the equivalent, I would say, in the United States as the Secretary of Commerce, Secretary Raimondo, uh, but at the same time, I also have constituents 
who expect me to represent them in, in our legislature. So the big difference for our listeners is that when you're a cabinet minister in Canada, you're both part of the legislative branch and also the executive branch. So then you can smile at me and you assume, okay, how do you manage time? Time is the most challenging thing in terms of having to not only belong to a political party, uh, being the representative of your constituents in the legislature, at the same time serving uh, in an executive fashion to obviously, uh, uh, I would say, respond to all the duties and response. My department is one of the largest, you know. Uh, for example, I have the equivalent of the uh, of NASA, the Canadian Space Agency. I go with the census, which is in my department. And like you said, I have all the research institute in the country, plus uh, the whole piece around industry. So all sector of the economy, uh, basically uh, being a steward. And at the same time, there's a lot of cross-border issues. I'm happy that uh, you say that. First of all, because I study just next door. I study in Hawaii and Cleveland. So for okay. me, every time I come here, uh, it, it's good. And also because I would say one thing that is obvious to us, but not always obvious to anyone around the world, but there are no two nations in the world which have more integrated supply chain than Canada and the United States. And I'm always one to boast that relationship. For example, when you look at the auto sector, I always say uh, the Windsor Detroit corridor is the third largest in the world after uh, manufacturing in China and what you see in Germany. So what we have established together is something for us to be really proud. And actually, when you talk to workers, I'll give you stories. For example, when we had the the famous COVID uh, and and one of the technicians and ministers, you know, I, I am a, actually one who serves both plants on both sides of the border. So she was spending, I think, the morning on the Canadian side and the afternoon in the U.S. side and then going back home. So it just tells that how much we have built together and how much I think ahead of us now that we're moving from the combustion engine to the electric vehicle. I think this is like, uh, when is the last time that we've seen a breakthrough change in technology? I mean, you and I are of an age that yeah. <laughs> we've always seen the combustion engine, but now clearly uh, with the US automakers and I would say the others around the world were, were resolutely going electric. But my vision, and that's why it's so important to be here, I was with Dow Chemical today is that uh, not only I think uh, you know customers will want an electric vehicle, but I think they want a, a green vehicle. Yeah. And that's why I say we can be the green supplier of choice. So with green steel, green aluminum, uh, green plastics, that's what I was talking to Dow Chemical, and eventually green batteries. So I think that we have the wherewithal in this part of North America uh, to onshore uh, jobs here, uh, to do more on the side of innovation and the car of the future, uh, but at the same time, to provide uh, for folks not only good jobs now, but I would say for generations to come. And that's why when I come here, uh, it, it's always a good uh, a good moment because uh, I, I see a lot of similarities between uh, the industrial base that you have here and what we have in Canada. That's good to know. We'll unpack a little bit more of that uh, later on, especially with electric vehicles. But since you did mention that you were speaking with Dow Chemicals, for mm. example, for folks, again, who might be intrigued as to why someone from Canada would be spending so much time here in Michigan, you mentioned speaking to Dow Chemical. Why specifically are you here touring the state? I know you touched on it a bit. And who have you been talking to? Well, uh, the reason of Dow is that we have a big project together uh, about a, a Netherland plant, which would be uh, one of the lowest emission or perhaps the lowest emission plant in the world that we're looking together to serve both markets. Uh, because what you find, you know, is that most of the U.S. companies that you find here in Michigan 
or oh, I would say even generally in the United States, I was in Washington about three weeks ago with, with some of the defense contractor, is that they have operations on both sides of the border. And what I'm trying to do oftentimes is to replicate the very successful relationship and industrial base we have built. Because like I say, we're, we're, we're complementary. You know, right. there's no competition. The competition right. is not in North America. We know where's the competition. It's not here. Right. So what we've done in the auto sector, for example, you may have heard, I'm trying to replicate that. For example, having a similar corridor between Albany and Bromont and Quebec on the chip side so that not only we are more resilient, because one of the things when you mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, and everything that President Biden has been doing to, to really be a catalyst to adopt these green technologies, for me, uh, the underpinning principle is resiliency. Yeah. And my message to Washington and, and to folks in the U.S. is that if the United States wants to be more resilient, Canada's to be part of the equation. Mm. And I'll tell you why, because uh, when you look at what we need for the economy of the 21st century, we need two things which are quite obvious. One is critical minerals, so that we can be uh, more resilient when it comes to battery manufacturing for the cars of the future. And the other one is chips manufacturing. So on one end, you will manufacture them, but I'm sure folks probably don't really know but Canada uh, with IBM is, is the larger site for packaging and testing of these semiconductors in Canada. Mm. So there you go again. Yeah. What is true in the auto sector is true uh, in the chip sector, and it's also true in the aerospace sector uh, with Boeing, for example. So what I'm trying to do is always try to find opportunities, uh, knowing that the competition is never within uh, continental North America. But, but, you know, we have to, to raise our game. Yeah. And I think uh, these uh, landmark, I would say, bill from President Biden is, is raising the bar. And I think for me, I see that as opportunities. Well, I want to unpack that here, especially because, you know, there are going to be some people listening now who think of the world maybe a little bit more zero sum. They're going to mm. be concerned that, wait a second, if Canada is manufacturing these things, then that's going to mean a loss from us here in Michigan and beyond. Especially you'll have people who live around here who think of NAFTA, for sure. example, and have big concerns about what that did for manufacturing here. For folks who have that concern that maybe this would mean taking away opportunities from Michigan or folks, what response would you have for them about how this works for everyone's benefit? I would say it's quite the opposite. It's bringing opportunities mm. because in order for us to be more resilient, take a battery, for example. And battery will be like, depending on the type of vehicle you have, 40 to 60 percent of the value of, of a lightweight electric vehicle. Now, uh, to build these batteries, uh, you need a number of critical minerals. Uh, you need nickel, you need lithium, you need cobalt, you need manganese. Now, it, it so happened that maybe, in a way, Canada has been blessed with geography and geology in the sense that most of these minerals are north of the border. Now, if you look at that, you said, I think, and I'll put it to your listeners, I don't think it really makes sense to mine in Africa to refine these minerals in China and to build battery with coal. I think folks who are listening would say, well, who's our most trusted partner and neighbor that we have is Canada. Mm -hmm. So if you want to build a resilient supply chain to build a car of the future, you realize that that's why I'm saying for the U.S. to be resilient, Canada is to be part of the equation because these critical minerals would rather do it together uh, as opposed to having uh, the United States having to import it from, let's say, markets in Asia when they are next door. So that's why I say together we do more. Right. It's not about, like you said, the zero-sum game because uh, the alternative is what? Is not resiliency, is dependency. And if we want to cut dependency 
in these very critical supply chain for which customers, folks who are listening have been paying for that. I'm sure everyone remembers how much we've been uh, wanting of chips right. and plants have been stopping for that. So the fact that we'll be able, for example, to manufacture the chip, but the fact that we don't have to send them in Asia for the last bit of it, which is the packaging and testing, but that's going to be done in Canada, it makes both the United States and Canada more resilient. And that, in my view, is what people want because the, you know, there's a reason why it's called the Inflation Reduction Act is that if we work together, we're going to be more resilient. And with resiliency, you bring efficiency. And with efficiency, you bring price down. Yeah. And I think ultimately that's what consumers want because, um, you know, on both sides of the border, that's what we've been able to establish that uh, we are mutually dependent. And for folks listening, and I'm sure probably I'll say three things that you probably have not heard very often, Nick, but you may know or not that Canada buys more from the United States than China, Japan, and the UK combined every year. Mm. That two-thirds of the United States, two-thirds of Canada's their first export market. That is massive. That is massive. And that the trade between our two countries is more than $2 billion a day. There is no two nations in the world that have more exchange on a daily basis than Canada and the United States. Yeah. So we're friends, we're allies, and we're partners. That's why, you know, we've seen recently, whether it's the, the Chinese balloon, you know, NORAD reacted and, and Northern Command was there. But it was both, you know, U.S. fighter pilot and Canadian fighter pilot, which were ensuring our safety and our security. So what is true there uh, in terms of national security, I think you can translate that into our economic prosperity, which is, you know, we are mutually dependent because we share the same continent after all. Right. And that's how we've been uh, able to organize ourselves. And I think that's the best way uh, to bring jobs on both sides uh, of the border. We're speaking with Francois-Philippe Champagne, again, the Canadian Federal Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry here on Detroit Today and 1019 WDET. And I want to get into a little bit about your move toward net zero carbon emissions. Hmm. And we will do that in a moment. But with the last thing you just mentioned, I wanted to uh, just unpack that a little bit more because you're talking about the mutual investment that we have here in America with Canada. And I know Michiganders, especially sharing a border as we are doing more work to take away some of the manufacturing and reliance on China and having more reliance on Canada, folks here will probably be interested in knowing what Canada is doing. You mentioned how much you sure. purchase from uh, America. Let's talk Michigan in, spe in specifics. Uh, can you give listeners an example of how you in Canada or what you're uh, doing to in terms of investment in Michigan and if you're planning for that to oh, continue yes. moving forward? I mean, you see Canadian companies uh, as many, you know, oftentimes, and I'm happy you asked that question, Nick, because oftentimes folks listening may think, oh, well, that's U.S. companies being on both sides of the border. Well, I have something to tell you. There's Canadian companies which are on both sides of the border as well. You right. can think of Magna, you can think yes, of Linamar, right. you can yeah. think of Martin Rio. They have operations on both sides because you know what? They realize that, you know, there's five things that, that you know, global companies are seeking today. You know, the first one is talent. And I would say that we've been very lucky on both sides of, of the border, both in Michigan and I would say in Canada and Ontario, uh, to have a very, very dedicated talented and educated workforce. And that's the first thing. The second thing people are looking at, if they're going to put a plant, you know, in our area, is, is there a strong ecosystem? And that we can say flat out, yes, we are. We have a very strong ecosystem because they look at it on both sides of the border. The third thing they look is that, is there critical minerals? 
because the car of the future is not the car of your father and our grandfather. It's an electric car. And what's an electric car? It's basically a computer on wheels and with a battery. But in order to do the battery, you need these critical minerals. And there I would say, Nick, proximity is everything. Proximity to resources, to the assembly lines, and to the market. The fourth, I would say, is around renewable energy. Mm. Uh, because what you see from the manufacturers, they want to green the supply chain. That's where we're moving. That's where we're going electric. But we just don't want to be electric. We want to be green. And the last thing is access to market. Because they realize that when they do that, uh, whether in the United States or Canada, uh, we have access to markets around the world. In fact, Canada is the only G7 country which has a free trade agreement with all other G7 nations. So it's mutually beneficial because sometimes a U.S. company would say, well, I want to come in Canada because that gives me access, for example, to the European market. Or you will have a Canadian company who said, you know what, uh, I want to be in Michigan uh, because I want to be close to the plant of Ford or GM because I'm doing that piece, which is very critical. And if you look at vehicles, you know, when we have looked at this corridor, because our game is really to attract investment in the Northeast, where we are, you know, in, in our region, what, what you've seen many times is that a, a vehicle would move like six times across the border before it goes to a final customer. So it's just that many times we don't realize because it's seamless to you and I. You know, we just get our goods, we get our masks during COVID, uh, we get our vaccines, uh, we get our cars. But what makes us successful on both sides of the border is the fact that we work together. And like I said, my, my wish is always let's seize the moment and be ambitious. And, and let's try to see how we can do more together. Because, you know, when people have a choice, Nick, they can go either in the southern state, they can go west, they can go to the east coast, they can go north. I think our game here is to say, what can we do in this corridor, right. which is recognized around the world? You know, you go in Japan, people talk about what we're doing here. You go in Korea, they talk about it. Uh, you go in Germany, they talk about it. So we have created this, this, this I would say, amazing ecosystem. And, and that is because people have invested for decades in that. And, and for example, I was reminded, and I'll leave it there, but, you know, uh, when we had COVID, I don't know how many nurses are coming from Canada to hospitals here in Michigan. Mm. Uh, you know, when they were looking yeah. at border easing. And at the time, I recall someone said, but let's be mindful that if we are... Uh, if we close that border, uh, you know, there might be a number of folks on the other side of the border who are going to be uh, impacted because, you know, these this this medical personnel will, won't be able to cross the border. So, you see, it plays yeah. on both. That's what I'm saying, and I think you capture it, is that a, a decision on one side always has an impact on both. That's how I would say with the governor, with the premier, with both federal government. We're very aware that, you know, we share the longest unguarded border in the world, and we have the Great Lakes. Uh, we have this this advantage of of leading the world when it comes to technology, manufacturing, and innovation, and, and that's really where I would like us to see succeed. Right, right. Well, I know I don't have you forever, but a couple <laughs> more questions before you get out of here. One of the things that uh, is truly ambitious, speaking of ambition, that you're going for is in June of 2021, Canada passed the Canadian Net Zero Emissions Accountability Act, which mandates that Canada will have a net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Why was 30 years a good timeline, and what are the things Canada is doing to move its country away from carbon sources? Well, I think that's where the world is going. Mm. And, and, and certainly, 
why you need a period of transition? Well, because you know, to remove carbon in about every sector of our economy takes time. I mean, it's true in Canada, it's true in the United States, because, you know, what makes the United States a, a great country is that you have uh, industrial base, whether in aerospace and defense, in the automotive sector, in biomanufacturing, I can go on and on. Same thing in Canada. So we have taken steps, for example, to be a producer of green steel, green aluminum, uh, green batteries. I want to do green s microchips, for example, because mm -hmm. I think that's the direction we want to go. Uh, and, and I think we were somehow, Nick, I, I, I can, the prime minister um, had set the tone. And I think uh, thanks now we are all on the same page in trying to decarbonize as quickly. My discussion with Dow, for example, on their plan. I think everyone realized that, that that's where we need to go. And how we can do that is with technology. Yeah. It's with innovation. It's with science. You know, I, I was on a plane recently. And sometimes you meet amazing people on planes. So the, the gentleman next to me said, sir, do you know I'm a researcher? And I started engaging with him. He said, you know what? The science of today is the economy of tomorrow. Right. And that, you know, I, I kept repeating that because I think that if we do more together and if we are together at the table internationally to set the standard, to set the norms, to do more research together, uh, we were talking about renewable energy. We talk about green technology, uh, capturing carbon. Uh, this is where we can win. You know, we need to be prepared for the economy of the 21st century. And there's never been competition between us. You know, that's not where the competition is. Right. If, we, if we are together, we are stronger. Yeah. And that I know because our allies around the world, everyone wants to have a piece of what we're doing in North America. Uh, because, you know, uh, if you talk to leaders around the world, there are three things top of mind. Uh, it's food security, it's energy security, and it's supply chain resiliency. And I think in these three fields, Canada and the United States can be leaders to help our allies, friends, and partners around the world. So. Very good. Canadian Federal Minister of Innovation, Science, and Industry, Francois-Philippe Champagne, thank you for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you very much for having me, sir. When we return, we will continue our conversation, this time keeping it on this side of the border, by checking in with Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist on Detroit Today, right here on 1019 WDET. Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET, where I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson. On Tuesday, Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed an overhaul of Michigan's tax system into law in a bid to provide financial relief for retirees and low-income earners in the state. The bill marks what many Democrats and progressive voters in the state hope can be the launching point for meaningful changes now that Democrats control the le both legislative chambers and the governor's mansion for the first time in 40 years. But what exactly does the new bill mean for Michiganders? And where do issues like gun laws, right to work and criminal justice reform fit into the Democrats' priority agenda this term? To address these issues and more, we're joined by Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist. Lieutenant Governor, welcome back to Detroit Today. Always good to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, I'm happy to have you here also because my first question is, when I was growing up and people told me what I could do in my life, they said you could be governor, president, you could be in the NBA. No one ever told me you could be lieutenant governor. And it seems like a really interesting career path. What does the Michigan lieutenant governor actually do? 
Well, I appreciate the question. So the first role is to be the president of the state Senate. So all the legislative achievements that you're describing that Democrats are delivering now because we have unique power for the first time in 40 years. I'm proud to preside over one of the chambers that's getting that done. And then my second role is to work with the governor to make sure we can advance an agenda that positions everybody in Michigan for success and opportunity. And so for me, that's meant really positioning our economy for growth and, and technology and new job creation so that Michigan can be a leader in the innovation economy. It also means making sure we can keep talented people here in the state of Michigan and attract talented people from around the country and around the world to come to the state of Michigan for opportunity. I've also been leading our efforts on criminal justice reform including um, making sure that, you know, the, the people don't come into contact with the system in the first place and set their position for success. But when they do, they're treated fairly and humanely and also prepared to reenter society so they can go and be their best. I've led our task force on limiting health care disparities during the COVID-19 pandemic and making sure that Michigan was a leader in that so that people could be healthy and, and be able to be their best here. So really my job is to make sure people have the tools they need um, to make their, their, their future and their family uh, work well here in Michigan. Well, one of the things I know that you guys are proud of and that just recently happened is yesterday signing the Lower Michigan Cost Plan into law. Can you tell people who are listening what the plan, what's in the plan and how you see it benefiting Michiganders? This is all about putting money in people's pockets and restoring promises. So we expanded something called the Working Families Tax Credit for about 700,000 families in the state of Michigan. Uh, who are working but still need a little bit of help to make ends meet. Well, 12 years ago, the Republicans pulled the rug out from under those families. Well, Democrats have restored that by putting an average of $3,000 in the pockets of 700,000 households in the state of Michigan. It's going to benefit about a million children and lift tens of thousands of people out of working poverty. It's one of the biggest anti-poverty programs that's been signed in Michigan in a generation, and we're super proud of that. We also are repealing this unfair tax on retirement income. Uh, an important issue for our retirees, half a million people are going to receive an average of at least $1,000 or more a year because we repealed this retirement tax that Republicans put on uh, retired people on fixed income 12 years ago because they thought to balance the budget, they should cut taxes for big companies and raise taxes on retired people with fixed incomes. That was wrong. It especially broke the promise that pensioners have where you were guaranteed a certain amount of money when you retired. Republicans broke that promise. So Democrats have fixed that. Um, as of the signing of this legislation, we're very proud to put money in people's pockets at a time when things are so expensive and restoring the promises that have been made to Michiganders. One of the things when you bring up that and you're referencing that previous bill by the Snyder administration 12 years ago that provided all that tax relief for corporations uh, is the fact that also snuggled in there was uh, that if the, uh, the, the, the coffers in Michigan got to a certain level, there'd be an automatic uh, tax uh, cut across the board for everybody. And I know there was, you didn't have enough votes. The Democrats didn't have enough votes to make the bill take immediate effect, which would have provided, what, about $180 in inflation relief checks uh, to folks here in Michigan and also prevent that automatic income tax rollback from happening. Uh, what's going on with that right now? Is there anything that can be done about this, or are we going to expect that Michigan's highest income earners will be receiving a tax cut on the back of this as well? Well, let's, I want to I want to make sure we're very clear about something. The reason that this plan is not going into immediate effect is because Republicans refuse, even though they've made many public statements to the contrary, 
to give Michiganders that immediate relief. Every single Democrat voted for immediate relief to put money in people's pockets right now to fix this working family tax credit to deliver on this retired uh, the tax and retirement income repeal. So let me just make that very, very clear. Now, the books on the on, for the state of Michigan for the last fiscal year are not closed. They should have been closed at the end of the last legislature that was led by Republicans. Unfortunately, it was not. So we have to we're going to do that by the end of the month, and we'll see where things land. Um, with where those state revenues uh, ended up for last year. So we don't really have a, a clear answer yet, but the Treasury Department's working on it. Very good. We'll keep monitoring that, and I appreciate the clarification as we are speaking with Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist here on 101.9 WDET. And we can speak with you as well with any questions that you might have by calling 313-577-1019. Now, Lieutenant Governor, of course, the tragic shooting at Michigan State University has caused gun violence to be top of mind with many Michiganders. And I've seen numerous lawmakers indicate that gun reform is something that is going to get done in Lansing this term. What regulations are being discussed and do you have enough buy-in to pass them given the narrow two-vote majority Democrats currently hold in the state Senate? First and foremost, the, the realities of gun violence are too real for too many people all across the state of Michigan. Look, I've lost people in my life personally to gun violence, and it's been an experience that many folks have had. And the recent shooting at Michigan State, an institution that's connected to every community and every county in Michigan, just hit, hit even harder for a lot of people. So certainly my heart is with um, everyone impacted by that particular tragedy. This is going to be another example of how Democrats are going to deliver on long-cap promises on popular policy. The truth is the majority of Michiganders overwhelmingly support things like making sure we can check people's backgrounds for violent history before they purchase firearms. The overwhelming majority of Michiganders, including gun owners, support the fact that people should store their guns safely in their homes. I mean, when I was in middle school, I had classmates lose younger siblings to unsafe to guns being stored in shoeboxes rather than locked up and kids having gun accidents and killing each other. We also know that the overwhelming majority of Michiganders support um, having extreme risk protection orders, which basically means if a person is deemed dangerous to themselves or others by a family member, a friend, or someone else in their life, that those people should not have access to those firearms. These policies are popular. These policies also would have been effective in the high pro- and, and making it more difficult for the high-profile shootings to happen at Oxford High School or at Michigan State University. And Democrats do have the, the votes right now to move this legislation. You're already seeing those legislation be introduced and start to move quickly. The governor talked about it in her state of the state. And when those bills get to her desk, they will get signed into law. It is something that there seems to be a lot of movement on here, as again, we're talking to Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist on 1019 WDET in Detroit today. And speaking of priorities that I've seen a lot of lawmakers talking about, I mean, just yesterday I saw uh, folks talking about right to work. You know, you hear it as a priority, the desire to repeal Michigan's right to work laws, which have been really sticky across the nation. In fact, I saw one representative state that if we were to do it, we'd be the first in 60 years to repeal one of those laws across the state. Is repeal of right to work a priority right now in the governor's office? Let's, set, let's, let's lay, out some, lay out some foundation here. First and foremost, it is absolutely the case that we can build an economy in the state of Michigan that supports working people, brings supply chains home to Michigan where they belong, and creates prosperity for businesses large and small. That's what our economy has been founded on for hundreds of years, and we hope to continue that. Companies are consistently drawn to Michigan because we have amazingly talented people, 
and people who are talented and protected at work are even more productive. And so we are looking forward to making sure we can restore workers' protections and rights and do so in a way that allows the partnership between labor and the companies that they work for, large and small, to be able to grow, to innovate, to prosper, and to produce. And that is going to include the full restoration of those through repealing that law that shouldn't have been passed in the first place. It's a false choice that we reject, the people of Michigan reject, and that the businesses that are investing in Michigan also reject. Businesses like Ford creating another 3,500 jobs in Marshall, Michigan. The electric battery plants that we're seeing in Wayne County being built and up north in Big Rapids. Uh, General Motors making historic investments in communities across the state of Michigan to build their future, whether it's at the Detroit Hamtramck plant, at Lake Orion, or in the Lansing area. The jobs that are being created are because of Michigan's talented people, and companies know that protected people are more productive. Yeah, you know, Lieutenant Governor, I just heard from the uh, Canadian Foreign Minister, uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne, that Michigan is a place that they're looking to do business with as well in Canada. So that must go for something to what you're saying here as we continue our conversation with the Lieutenant Governor. And you mentioned earlier in uh, your discussion criminal reform uh, being criminal justice reform being something that was uh, on your agenda as a lieutenant governor. And I know one issue that seems to have bipartisan support right now in Lansing is juvenile criminal justice reform and ending life without parole for those under 19 years old. But I've also seen a lot of different bills uh, pending in the legislature and floating around. Is this something that Michigan can get passed into law this term? Yes. So the efforts to reform our criminal justice system to actually be rehabilitative and position people for success alongside accountability has been one of the best areas of bipartisan consensus we've had uh, since I've been in office. And that's going to continue this term. So I I led a lot of our work on to reform our, our jail systems at the county level in the state of Michigan through a task force. And then during that process, I heard a lot about challenges in the juvenile justice system, and so I led a second task force on juvenile justice reform that made recommendations to the legislature last summer that this legislature will take up. We're absolutely going to be able to get these uh, bills and, and progress made signed into law here. The governor signed, raised the age to ensure that people under 18 were treated as minors in juvenile court and receiving services rather than um, being charged as adults, and, and sort of this this piece that you're talking about on juvenile life is going to be a continuation of that policy. Very good. And as I mentioned that we are speaking with the lieutenant governor, we also want to speak with you by giving us a call, 313-577-1019, as we move to Robert in Detroit right now. Robert, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Hi. Um, very uh, interesting, the last segment uh, about our relations with Canada. And something that's been bothering me for a number of years, decades, is that the amount of trash that we, comes from Canada to our landfills. And with the recent derailments um, also here in the U.S., I'm, I'm very concerned that this is one of our major industries. And I'm wondering, um, I think it's because of too much deregulation over the years. And I think that we need more regulations and restrictions on these things because it's got to be cheaper to send the trash here than it is to keep it in Canada, where it's the second largest country in the world. 
You know, Robert, this is a little bit of a complex issue because trash transfer uh, across the states is going to be regulated by interstate commerce as well as the federal government controls a lot of what happens in terms of Canadian and U.S. relations and what travels across the border. But I do present that to you, Lieutenant Governor Gilchrist. Is this something that you've been hearing about, concerned about? What can you do? What can we do as a state when it comes to waste products and uh, how they get over here in Michigan? Well, I appreciate the clarification you just made, Nick. And, and so just starting off, we, our, our administration works very closely with the Environmental Protection Agency at the federal level. We have good partnership with the Biden-Harris administration to make sure that we are aware uh, of what's coming into and out of the state of Michigan. And we also have our Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy, that is monitoring very closely any materials coming to Michigan and make sure that they are meeting, meeting state standards. And, you know, the Michigan legislature is taking a hard look at what those standards can and should be and how we can empower uh, communities to make sure that they are safe, that the air they breathe, the water they drink, the soil they they plant seeds in, um, that it's supporting life and doing so healthily. And so we're going to continue to do that. Robert, I really do appreciate that question and your call, as that is something that's been top of mind with a lot of us here. One of the things that's been top of mind to me, Lieutenant Governor, as uh, we've had this discussion, when we even reached out to the governor's office here in Detroit today, we said, this week's a big week. We need the heaviest hitter you got. Who can you give us? They gave us you, which means that uh, obviously the office thinks really highly of you here. However, I've heard of a nickname for uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer. I've heard Big Gretch. I've not heard a nickname for Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist. I do remember the stand tall with Gilchrist uh, theme that was going on during the election. Uh, where's your nickname and why have they not given you a nickname yet? <laughs> Nicknames come from the people. People call me Deuce since I was a kid. I, I, I like it and I'm going to stick with it. I'm Garland Gilchrist, the second name after my father. And so we're going we're gonna to keep that one and keep it moving. But I think stand tall for Michigan um, was more than a slogan. It was about how we are so proud to be who we are in this state and that we will all, you know, stand up and be our best selves and, and to represent ourselves with pride. And if you meet somebody from Michigan, no matter where you are in the world, you got to know they're from Michigan. And that's really what that means. That's absolutely true. I'm going to have one more question along those lines a little bit. But the one question that I know will come up with the public, public transit is really big right now. Um, is there any interest to undo the mandate to pass public transit with millages only instead of being done through the state legislature to allow uh, local uh, locations a little bit more freedom on that? Well, let me give you my, my personal um, connection to, to public transit interpretation. Before I took office as lieutenant governor, I was a bus rider in Detroit exclusively. Mm-hmm. And so as a public, as a public official, um, I, I've, I've spent more time on the bus more recently than probably any of my counterparts uh, in the state of Michigan, let alone the region. And what I, I, the reason I share that is because this issue is incredibly important to me. This is a matter both of infrastructure, of equity, and of talent retention. All the people who we want to stay in Michigan want to be able to use public transit. All the people who we want to come to Michigan want to be able to use public transit. Yeah. Our administration has invested billions of dollars in public transit infrastructure in southeast Michigan and across the state. And so looking at the, this, this Democratic legislature, I know is very interested in looking at ways that we can enable communities to make that investment in public transit to leverage these state and federal resources. The Biden-Harris administration has put forth a number of resources to strengthen our public transit systems, whether they bus, rail, or, or, or other sorts of creative solutions. 
And we're supportive of making sure that investment can happen, too, because it's going to help us uh, keep people. It's going to help us create more opportunities for small businesses to thrive in more places through transit-oriented development. And it's going to help us attract the large kinds of investments you want to see from large employers as well. So it's a win, 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 win. And our administration continues to support that. Michigan Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist, thanks so much for joining us here on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for this segment, this edition of uh, Detroit Today. Tune in tomorrow when we're going to have another great conversation. But none of this happens without your support to get uh, these conversations going. Tune in tomorrow as you're listening to 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation.